0: Okay, so the topic I wanted to to talk about tonight is one where um, I'll ask for your indulgence on the, on the words as I first start to say them, because um, it's unusual, but uh, I, th- I think it's an interesting and useful topic, and that is that I want to talk about the notions of purity and purification Um, We don't usually talk about this topic in early Buddhism, and I'll explain why. (laughs) And then it is used in later Buddhism, and of course also you hear it in Christian doctrine. So we have, I would assert, we have some notion of this in our minds. And I want to talk about it explicitly in order to separate the two. People often have strong associations with the word purity and so you may be feeling uncomfortable. This is not what I signed up for when I came to a relaxing evening in meditation tonight. Um, so go ahead and acknowledge that and I'll tell you right up front that the, um, that the Buddha did not speak of aiming for purity as a goal in practice. That was not um, important to him. However, it was important to other people at the time and so he sometimes found ways to talk about this. We are, we'll get into that. But um, although purity is not of interest, it turns out that purification is actually important. And we'll talk about that too. So I want to start actually with the Western context for purity. And I definitely don't want to give a full overview or try to give a full analysis of this. It's probably beyond my scope of knowledge anyway, but I'll just talk about the parts that are relevant for our understanding here. So there are various um, Christian notions of absolution and forgiveness that tend to put purity in the hands of God. They say, if we're sincerely remorseful, then he can forgive our sins, which wipes the slave clean and restores our relationship with him. The effect of having this notion in the background of our culture, even if you didn't really grow up with much of that, like I didn't, for example, um, Nonetheless, there can be a tendency in our Western minds to see purity in terms of a transaction. So if I do something wrong, then the purity of the situation um, is somehow gets involved with the other person. You know, like there's something that needs to be exchanged between us for that to work out. Buddhism does not see purity in terms of a transaction. does It just doesn't see it that way. And this may land a little closer to home in terms of Western notions of purity, there are ideals of purity in our culture that you see, for example, uh, when people's behavior is based on certain beliefs. For instance, right here in Santa Cruz, you can see notions of idealism and purity around vegetarianism, veganism, buying organic, buying local. Things where people's behavior are based on beliefs there can be attachment around that and a creation of a notion of to be really pure, you have to do it this way. And those who aren't, those who don't do it that way, not as good. I see a few smiles. <laughs> Here's a quote from a guy named Xilong Wang, Long, um, writing about purity in the activist life of service. Perhaps by being around some hardcore activists, I have been influenced by some sort of service fundamentalism. In order to truly grow in service, you must quit your job, lose your visa, burn your passport, give away all your money and possessions, move into an impoverished and violent neighborhood, become a strict organic vegan locavore, and maybe grow a beard. Anything short of that would be pointless. Little did I notice the subtle ego and the arms race of purism embedded in these assumptions nor was I aware of the violence in my monopolizing the idea of what service should look like." So attachment to purity is an act of non-peace. That's why the Buddha didn't support it. He was about peace. He talked about peace, not purity. So we'll talk about that. Often notions, you know, an ideal of purity creates ideas of pure and unpure people, and it's associated often with unrecognized aversion. So that should get your attention as a Buddhist. It's part of one of the three poisons to have attachment to purity. So the Buddha talked about peace, not purity. All right. So then we'll move on to the Eastern context for purity. In the time of the Buddha, purity, which is Sudi in Pali, was actually a major focus for the Brahmins, who were the hereditary religious class of the time. They performed complex rituals and they also had certain possessions and ways of living that marked them as pure and also not surprisingly distinct from those who were the lower social classes. Considered the, they were considered the superior social class. Now in contrast to this, actually starting a couple hundred years before the Buddha, there were people who said, this is ridiculous and um, became what are called wandering ascetics or samanas. Uh, the Buddha didn't invent that. It was well established that there were people who left Indian society who um, uh, left their homes and their relatives and all that and they became religious seekers. And they did meditation, they did contemplation, they did um, various other activities that were about living in a way that was independent of the constraints of society. And so um, when the Buddha became a teacher among these, he was, he was a Samana teacher not living within the religious order of the time. And the Buddhist monks were actually part of this group of wandering ascetics. So that's the background. So that's why the Buddha felt like in some ways, sometimes he had to use that word because he had to connect with the people he was talking with. So now I want to distinguish purity from purification um, because that's important. So, there are many practices, both non-Buddhist and Buddhist, that aim to bring about purification. If you don't like that word because it sounds like sin, that's another problem we have in the West. You can use like cultivation or um, development. You know, the the removal of things that aren't helpful and the development and cultivation of things that are helpful. Love, compassion, generosity. These are all cultivations. There are also purifications of things that uh, that go against those behaviors. So take your pick how you want it. Substitute cultivation. And we'll talk about particular practices. Because that's kind of the point of what we want to talk about. But basically, I also want to talk about the process. You know, what is going on in cultivation or purification? It means changing the content of our mind stream, as well as our relationship to our mental habits. We all have mental habits that we start to see when we do practice. And if we change our relationship to these habits and patterns, that affects the quality of our life profoundly. You know, if you're a person who's caught up in anxiety and fear and anger a lot of the time, that's what brings people to meditation. And they say, you know, help, I need some relief from this. And what they really need is to change the mind so that it's able to deal with its circumstances and not react in that way or deal with that quality but have enough strength of awareness that it doesn't run our lives, you know, that we stop acting so much on the fear and the anger and the anxiety, but we're able instead to be mindfully present for it and let it subside. Like that marble rolling around, (coughs) if we don't add more, we talked about during the meditation, if we don't add more energy, it will slowly settle down. And in the same way, if we're able to be with our emotional patterns in a way that doesn't feed them and make them continue to drive our lives, they will eventually settle down and be uh, less of a driver. So this is very much about, you know, the, I think, whatever you call this practice, uh, development or cultivation or purification, it's an integral part of any spiritual discipline. what we're doing is we're making our minds an easier place to live making our minds and hearts an easier place to live this is from a teacher named Ken McLeod in Buddhist thinking the analogy of dirt is used to understand how unskillful actions affect us when I do harm to you I set in motion a process that will ripen in time in my own experience I have as it were introduced some dirt or some impurity into my experience of life Purification, if you want to call it that, is about removing that impurity so that it does not fester and generate problems in my stream of experience. So I hope I've eased the word purification as just being the process that we're undergoing of making our minds um, an easier place to live and therefore making our experience unfold in a more easy way. However, this other word, purity, that is a spiritual ideal. It usually comes about from taking a practice of purification, you know, something that would bring about purification, and then idealizing the end state. Basically, the idealization of purity is a pattern itself, and it's based on usually an unacknowledged aversion to dirt. If we're averse to dirt, then we claim that we have to have purity. We get attached to that. And that's really not that helpful because attachment is one of the things that causes suffering. So, in fact, it's the thing that causes suffering. <laughs> so, I want to talk now about the Buddha's statements about purity. What does he say? Uh, there's a wonderful book called the uh, in the Pali Canon called the Book of Eights. That's considered one of the oldest um, texts. There's many layers to the Pali Canon. There's, written over a while and it contains earlier teachings as well as later ones this is considered one of the earlier ones by many scholars Um, so he said here's some verses from it it's all written in verse I'm just pulling them out so they're not um, totally in context So here's one they don't categorize honor or claim anything to be absolute purity and the they is Uh, enlightened people having abandoned greed the knot of attachment they do not form any wish for anything in the world the implication being not even purity here's another one by being without passion and dispassion those who are cleansed don't ruminate about what is seen, heard, or thought out nor do they wish for purity through anything else here's another one But whoever has let go of all virtuous conduct and observances, as well as all actions, blamable and blameless, and who has no wishes for purity or impurity, lives without indulging, not even taking up peace. So that's a very radical verse that says that you can't even attach to peace if you're an arahant, because that would be an attachment. And... This first line, letting go of virtuous conduct and observances, it doesn't mean you do you do all unvirtuous things, but you've let go of your identification with them, so you you do good things, but you don't think I'm doing them, I'm getting better, I'm really pure. you know he's deliberately pointing out that thinking of yourselves in terms of of purity or virtue or blamelessness, which are all ways that people attach to this idea of purity. Uh, he says even those are let go of by an arahant. They're just doing, um, and by virtue of being an arahant, what you're doing doesn't bring harm. So, but you don't identify with with your goodness. That's what he's saying. Okay, and then one more verse. They don't speak of purity in terms of views, learning, knowledge, precepts, or observances. Nor do they speak of it in terms of the absence of views, learning, knowledge, precepts, or observances. It is by letting go, by not grasping, and not being dependent, that they, the peaceful, do not hunger for becoming. So one reason these are said to be very early teachings is that they actually challenge the notion of any kind of religion. The Buddha didn't really talk in religious terms in these very early texts. Later, people made it much more into something with religion, something where the Buddha was a saint, something where it was a lot more um, structured. But here we have things of, you know, they just don't talk about purity. They don't speak of purity in terms of what they think, what they do, but nor do they speak of it in terms of not doing those things. It's just kind of not relevant. It then goes on to says by letting go, by not grasping by not being dependent, meaning not dependent on conditions that the peaceful do not hunger for becoming. So they're not trying to be anything. These are very radical statements, and I find them a little challenging because, not challenging like I don't agree with them, challenging like, wow, how could I live that way? How could I really live with truly no attachment to my goodness, my identity, to wanting to be, any or not be, anything. So, I see it as in, inspiring, actually. I see how much suffering there is around wanting to be a certain way, even wanting to be a good Buddhist, wanting to be a good meditator, wanting to be a good volunteer in the community. Whatever it is that we do, it's so natural that we want to be seen a certain way, we want it to become part of our identity, It's so tricky because we can't do nothing. We can't just keep living as we are. We know that doesn't work, and we can't keep being angry and yelling at our children or being frustrated at our job. So we know that has to change somehow, but we're told that if we're trying to be virtuous or be good, that will eventually trip us up. So it's this very narrow line to walk of letting go, letting go of the things that are not helping us, but not... Grasping onto the things that we think that we know are helpful, having them but but not grasping onto them, so this brings in then I want to talk now about these um, practices that are of cultivation practices that we do to uh, reduce the suffering in our lives. so remember that the image I gave of um, of introducing uh, dirt into our stream of consciousness, um, into our stream of experience. So we all have it, we all have dirt. <laughs> it's uh, it's just our sort of poor habits of mind, judgment, anger, fear, shame, all the things that make our inner world non-peaceful. And our, con- our normal conditioning that we grow up with says, in order to fix all those things in your mind that don't feel comfortable, you need to change the outer world or change all the people around you. But we, luckily, these practices teach us that we can actually do this internally. That doesn't mean it's easy or always pleasant, um, but it is possible, and it's more certain if we're doing the change to our own heart. That's at least something that we know we have access to. (laughs) I mean, to say it frankly, there there may be people with whom there's been an exchange of harm. are now dead if there were no way to resolve that you'd be stuck but if the process is internal uh, it doesn't require that other person's participation then we're okay then we'll be able to let go of that suffering so this is not a problem in Buddhism we're able to do this internally I'm not saying, by the way, that there's never a place for working things out in relationship. Obviously, there is. Um, But I'm talking about our our practice, our interior purification practice. To understand how this works, there needs to be a little bit of talk about karma, or karma, the flow of experience. As I said at the beginning, Western minds often think of karma as transactional, that somehow... I can affect your karma through what I do, or um, acts like forgiveness or metta practice is affecting your karma. It's not true, actually. If I do those practices, it affects my karma. It's kind of how it works. And then another issue that Westerners have with karma, because we're very literal-minded, is that we think it's a ledger book. So there's a one-for-one. One, you know, any action I do in the world, um, karmic... <coughs> basically has kind of a, a, an equal constant weight. You know, if I do one act, it always has that same weight as it had when I did it. And if I want to resolve it, it's kind of one-to-one, like, you know, one angry comment to receiving one angry comment without reacting or something. You know, an eye for an eye kind of thing. And it's, that's not true either. Karma um, doesn't work that way. It can change its weight over time. What you do to purify yourself absolutely affects how your karma ripens. So let me talk about that a little bit. Here's another quote from the same teacher as before. Karma is based in evolution. Patterns of behavior set in motion by actions we do in the world continue to evolve and shape our perceptions and predispositions. That process does not stop until we change our relationship with those patterns. There is no grace in the operation of karma, just as there is no grace in the operation of gravity. The only way to stop the evolution of reactive patterns is to change our relationship with those patterns and that is what purification is about. So we're not we're not literally doing a one for one atonement. I'll we'll use that word because that that's in the background of our minds this sort of one to one ledger book where they're going to add it up when we die and we'll find out whether we go this place or that place. It doesn't work that way in Buddhism. That's not that's not the understanding. Uh, I'm not saying this is the absolute right way, but I'm saying that within this context of these teachings, this is there's a different view. So there are some interesting implications of this. People who have a lot of merit or goodness, or that is people who don't have a lot of dirt in their stream, they have they feel the effects of unskillful karma immediately. And this is a good thing. Um, that means that they can immediately correct what's going on. So, it's the way, if the cloth is clean, you will immediately see a spot of dirt on it. But if the cloth is really dirty, one more, you know, you'd hardly see it. And this is not what you want, because you want to be able to address karma right away, in order to remember those words that it will continue to fester over time. So you have to catch it quick. And if you have a cleaner mind stream, it's so easy to see. Like, if you're in the habit of using wise speech much of the time, when you slip, which inevitably you will, and you say something that's a little harsh or something, you know immediately. It's like, oh, that's not the way I usually speak. And so you can immediately say, wow, I'm sorry, I was unmindful at that moment, and you correct it. Whereas if you say it and you don't even notice, it'll fester over time, that relationship will get damaged, it's going to cause a lot more problems. So... um Another thing is that dirt evolves over time. So I kind of started talking about that already. It's not really just like a spot on a cloth. It's more like a spot of mold on a sponge. And that's going to grow over time, right? The little spot gets bigger and bigger on a wet sponge. And so um, we want to make sure. That's why it's a great thing to catch it early. So we have our clean sponge, and then we don't have a lot of things growing on it over time. So literally, people who have a lot of merit will feel kind of a minor twinge from something that happened. Actually, it may feel fairly major since it's so unusual, but they'll they'll feel it right away as a twinge and be able to act on it. It'll end up being much more painful for a person who had a lot of mold on their sponge and they let it fester for a long time. So the same act, the same act of one act of harsh speech has different weight for different people depending how the, the rest of the context that it's happening in is. You can definitely affect the future ripening of karma by your actions now. That's the good news. So, if there's some painful seed in your past that hasn't ripened yet, this is an evolutionary process, you don't know when those seeds are going to sprout. If there's something in your past that hasn't really ripened yet, hasn't caught up with you, um, and you... And say it's going to ripen like a year from now, but you don't know that. If you spend this year purifying your mind and really making your mind more wholesome, then when it does ripen, it will have a smaller effect. It just will. Um, And if you don't do that, then it will have a bigger effect. The classic example of this is a wonderful sutta called Angulimala. Has anybody heard of that one? Yeah, a couple of you are nodding, so... Angulimala was a murderer, and he killed 999 people. He had a, he had in his his intention was to kill a thousand. He was told actually to kill a thousand, and he blindly obeyed an order without checking whether it really made sense to him. But so he was blindly killing a thousand people like he was told. His he did 999, and the thousandth was going to be the Buddha. That wasn't such a wise choice, or maybe it was because he was not able to overwhelm the Buddha and kill him. Instead, the Buddha gave him a teaching, and Angulimala was so impressed by it that he actually just renounced his old habits, threw away his knife, and decided to ordain. And the Buddha gave him instructions, and for some reason he had, even though he'd been doing all these murders, that hadn't quite ripened yet for him, and he actually had a good heart. He'd been a spiritual practitioner before he became a murderer. And so he had a fair amount of merit already from that. And so when he ordained with the Buddha and was given instructions, he actually became an arahant, practicing. He completely liberated his mind. And then all the murders ripened. And the result was that he, when he went through a town, all the people knew that he was a murderer and they threw things at him and he got um, cut. He had a bleeding head when he came back and he was in, you know in pain from being hit with sticks and stones. And the Buddha said, bear it, bear it, Brahman, because that is the ripening of all that murdering. And if you're, because you're an Arahant, it's not too bad. Cut on the head, not too bad. Uh, if you hadn't done that and, and become an Arahant, you would, be, you would you know, you'd be a lot more pain. He actually said, you'll go to hell. But um, you know, it would have been a much bigger disaster. So some people hear this, and they feel that this is somehow unjust. That, you know, if you murdered 999 people, you should not get away with it just, um, in, you know, with a cut head. But he ended all of his suffering, which means that he can never again introduce any suffering into the world. Can we say that of ourselves? <laughs> Even though we're probably not going to murder somebody in this lifetime. Um, so he did the greatest thing that you can do. And it's an interesting... Question for our own heart <laughs> how we feel about a murderer getting off in that way. Sometimes I ask people if you could snap your fingers, and in doing so, every murderer in the world, everyone who has actually committed a murder in the world, would instantly become an Arahant like Angulimala, would you hesitate? It's interesting to think about. Anyway, so, the purpose of that example was to point out that, in this way of thinking, um, our purification changes the ripening of karma that we may have done in the past. stuff that we don't know about necessarily will ripen more benignly, even if it still has to ripen negatively if we're if it was negative karma, but it will be more benign so you might then be interested in what various purification practices are <laughs> uh, or development or cultivation practices, if you would. Um. So how do these come about? Purification in the spiritual sense is about creating conditions for difficult mental habits to release themselves. If we try to let go of a pattern directly, like, I'm going to stop being an angry person now, we find that there's a what's called a survival mechanism <laughs> built into it, you know, we will, if we try to go at something and say, I have to let go of this, I have to end doing this, it actually will kind of, it might double down and protect itself. And you find that it doesn't work very well. Um, so instead, you know, that can actually reinforce the pattern. So instead we have to do other practices that are more benign. I also have some training in a practice called somatic experiencing, um, where you help a person... Uh, who has had some kind of traumatic experience in the past and is giving them a negative pattern, like for example PTSD or something else? There are ways to release this through somatic experiencing, and basically what you do is that you are, you allow it to come into the body in a safe way, and the secret is to have enough attention, usually through the help of the you know the therapist who's doing the somatic experiencing, uh, to hold the attention so that if you have enough awareness. While you re-experience the pain of that, not, not re-traumatize, but bring into your awareness that pain that you're carrying locked in your body, it is possible for it to release itself. You have to feel it. But if you feel it with mindfulness, basically, uh, it will. that pattern can eventually end, which you couldn't do if every time it came up, you couldn't hold it and it would just react. So this is basically purification. That's basically what happens. And when you sit on the cushion, and you remember that conversation you had yesterday, or you remember that painful thing from when you were 15 years old, like, why is this coming up? I'm just sitting here. I haven't thought about this for decades. Purification. It's coming out. If you can experience that with mindfulness, that is a pattern releasing. You may, may have to see it a hundred times. But it's releasing, it's releasing. Every time you can see it with mindfulness, it's getting a little weaker. This is a good thing. Then it's not running your life. And you're going to have choice about it. So this is basically how purification or cultivation practices work. That's basically the mechanism of all of them. But they take different forms. In our tradition, we do metta practice, for example. This is absolutely a purification practice you bring to mind the notion that you want to be loving, that you want to have goodwill for people. What happens? All your ill will comes up, right? Because you're, you're creating a pattern that's different from a pattern of ill will, of wishing harm. Even if you're not wishing harm directly, it's the kind of grumpy irritated mind um, that's not very happy with other people. That's kind of that ill will mind. And when you bring up Menta, that pattern says, Hey, hey, you're not paying attention to me. But if you can stay with the metta, or if it's too strong, drop the metta and switch to mindfulness of ill-will, that ill-will gets weaker over time. If you engage it in that way, you don't go at it with a hammer and say, I'm going to get rid of my ill-will. But this is a practice that allows it to release. Also, um, all the mindfulness of the body practices are similar, actually, to somatic experiencing. That's just a modern, more psychological term. But the Buddha gave a whole discourse on mindfulness of breathing, a whole discourse on mindfulness of the body. He very much wanted people to feel things in their direct experience. All those subtle little sensations of the tingling and the pulsing and the energy moving through the body. If we can experience that just calmly in mindfulness, eventually those emotional patterns will get... will get changed. Change to be weaker, or our relationship to them will just be that that they no longer have the power to swing our attention. I don't know if they ever completely go away in this lifetime. I assume they go away completely for an arhant, but it may be that what's realistic is just that over time we just see it come and we know that the pattern doesn't run us. Oh, there's that shame again. Okay, I feel it, part of the dukkha of being human, but it's not going to drag me down, cause me a lot of suffering. So the, the Buddha very much emphasized metta practice and body practices, I think, for this very reason. Other traditions include other things. They've developed other ways of helping the mind, basically. For example, some Buddhist traditions use ritual. Zen and Tibetan traditions use this more. Ritual is a way of entering another mind state, of doing an activity in a, a, a prescribed activity in a very um, repetitive way that takes you out of your ability to do just whatever I want. You have to pour the tea in this way. You can't just pour the tea the way you want to pour it. So again, you're you're going against patterns. You're breaking bodily habits, you're breaking mental habits by having to do it in a certain way. Now ritual can be attached to, it can be made into a notion of purity. But if it's done properly, Uh, It can be a way to release uh, patterns also. People find it very calming. Some people like that practice. Visualizations, deity practices, other things that you see in some of the other Buddhist traditions. Um, These also help us to change our relationship to the way our mind and heart are otherwise habitually operating. So basically, they help us experience in some way what we could not or would not experience earlier. If we can somehow experience that with attention, then that, that sh- then it just becomes another experience. Oh yeah, there's that shame, that anger, etc. And that, that shift changes everything, actually. And that's how people change over time in practice. You know, somebody's been meditating for 10 years and you start realizing, wow, now they're really kind of different than they were, or even 10 months. Sometimes people have the experience of, they start meditating and they don't think much is happening, but all their friends say, wow, you're so much nicer to be around now. <laughs> it's like, oh, thanks. <laughs> but but something happened, right? Something happens in the energy when we start to be able to release these habitual patterns. So what's the point of all this? I want to end with that. What's the point? The point is not purity. The point of purification is not purity. Remember I said that at the beginning. So the point of purification practices is to get the mind into a state where it can let go. This is a change where it can have insight. So we do these practices actually for two reasons. I mean one is that they they add lightness and joy and good mental health to our life here and now. Absolutely. And if that's your aim in in practicing meditation, fine. (laughs) It's fine. Um, However, the Buddha does go a little bit farther in his teachings, for those who are interested, is that actually a mind that is relatively um, relatively less dirt. So if we've done some of this cultivation and development, the mind is in a state where it's more likely to be able to release. So purity is not the aim of practice. Liberation is the aim of practice. How do we liberate the mind? Well, you can't make it happen. But a dirty mind is less likely to be liberated than a clean one. Theoretically, it could be. Liberation is always available. Nibbana is always available. It's not We don't create it through our practice, but we're not aware of it much of the time. And a mind that's cleaner, so to speak, is more likely to be able to get in touch with it. So there's, that's another motivation to do these purification practices even after you've started to glimpse something of what the Buddha was talking about, you actually get even more motivated <laughs> to do purification practices and, and cultivation and so forth because you realize exactly where it's leading and what it allows us to contact. So I hope that gives some context to words like purity and purification which I'm sorry if it was, you were grating on your ears the entire time, I know those are not always pleasant words, but you will read them, like if you read the teachings of the Buddha, there's sometimes you see it and you wonder why is that or it also, I hope, helped point towards some of our weird notions we have around it based on our Judeo-Christian Western culture or our political um, ideals of how we think pure good community behavior should be or something. So, yeah, I hope that provided some understanding of those terms and the difference between purity and purification, and that in the end, it's not the aim. (laughs) (laughs) Liberation is not total purity in that sense. Okay, are there any questions? I have a question, Mm -hmm. how do we know that karma exists, I mean, observation and experience over time and many... Over, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's something where we sort of build up our own set of experimental data around it. Now, granted, the workings of karma, if you really wanted to know specifically, exactly how one seed evolves all through time, the Buddha says you can't do that because our mind is too limited. There's right. too many conditions in the world. Right. It's just too complicated. But. So I've wondered about that too. Is if karma is ultimately completely unknowable, how could I know enough about it? You know, and it turns out it's it's in between um, something you totally something you totally can't figure out and something that's you could understand completely. It's there. Can, there's just enough evidence for it that you become more and more convinced over time. Um, if if you do, I mean, you can read about what the principles of it are and then check it out in your own experience. I've found much of it to be compelling. Yeah. And also you can check out if you carry the belief of karma, like if I believed that my actions had consequences that ripened evolutionarily, would that help me live in the world? And I find that it does, you know, it's much better than if I believe my actions don't have any consequences or if I believe they have random consequences, then I definitely wouldn't spend a lot of time sitting on a cushion every day. Um, you know, I, I believe that there are effects of what I do and that they, it unfolds in a certain way. And I find that when I believe that and I actually, or when I subscribe to that view, whatever, however you want to say it, and then I act and choose to do actions that I think will be helpful karmically, my life goes better, so it's like works reaping for me. Yeah, you reap what you sow. Not, not in the one-to-one proportion. Because it. mm-hmm. it's it's a, it's more like you, um, yeah. You so if you sow seeds and then you water them in a certain way and cultivate them, you might grow nice, beautiful plants. If you sow nice seeds but never water them and leave them in the shade, even if they're beautiful flowers, they're probably not going to grow. So we, it is helpful to cultivate the things that are um, fruitful. On the other hand, if we're cultivating weeds, <laughs> we're going to get a lot of weeds. I'd rather put the weeds in the in the shade and not water them, <laughs> right? So that's maybe a better image. So karma is common common sense. It's, it can common sense will take you a long way, in it, but also observation of how things are unfolding, uh, how things went in the past, how they're unfolding even in this moment. And then how they unfolded afterwards—that are all relevant reflections. Since you used a, 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 the metaphor that you did, or the example that you did, it, it makes me think that it's just we accept nature. We've seen it. You plant the seed. You don't water it. It's going to die, and we know that.
1: I mean, I think we've seen it enough.
0: Yeah. Although. Every seed has the potential to ripen in this uh, in this understanding. So I, maybe the seed analogy isn't totally perfect because every action we take that has an intention behind it plants a seed. And so not all seeds are going to ripen in this lifetime. So you might, quote-unquote, get away with some things. <laughs> if right. um, you believe in multiple lifetimes, you don't. <laughs> but... Um, we don't get any free seeds, except things that we do that are outside of intention. So, like, enlightened people act outside of planting karmic seeds. Um, but most of us are planting karmic seeds a lot of the time. And also the things we do that are completely non-volitional don't have the same karmic impact. This is also important to know for Westerners. Um, if I am at the train station, this is a dramatic example, and I... I'm walking backwards, wheeling my suitcase, and I trip on a rock and I fall backwards and I fall into another person and they fall on the tracks and get killed. I totally did not intend that. And it does plant karmic seeds in some way, but it's not, um, it doesn't count as murder, it doesn't count as a violation of the first precept. It's a violation of mindfulness. But it doesn't, you know, because there wasn't intentional will to kill somebody, it doesn't have as strong karmic consequences. It might cause a lot of guilt and remorse, um, but it's not at all the same in terms of total life unfolding as if you pick up a knife and do it. You know, it's not the same at all. So karmic weight is different depending on all kinds of things, including intention, including other conditions that were surrounding it. That was part of the example I tried to give earlier. Yeah. So we have to, con- I at least have to continually check my mind that I'm not thinking in sort of linear, material, scientific terms. Things. It's much more like how plants grow. Which I don't know about you, but I I find my plants don't always grow the way I expect yeah. them to, even though I do my best.
1: Yeah, Rex. We'll to the oh, Thank good. You. Okay. Uh, a couple things, uh, the Buddha's life, there was the phase where he was pursuing a set of
0: mm-hmm.
1: And if you think about it as pursuing a kind of purity,
0: mm-hmm. he decided... He gave to it be up. Yeah. <laughs> didn't work. The, the, the yeah. Nice example. Yeah. And, uh, so that, he became one of them, and he, he found, you know, if you can't beat him, join him, I guess, and he found out that... Well, later he did beat them, I guess, but he <laughs> found out, I mean, he actually did it, tried it with his own life, said this doesn't work, and went on. Yeah. yeah.
1: And the uh, couple of your analogies have interesting implications for me. I didn't have too much trouble with purity and purification, but I think of dirt as this wonderful thing that plants do. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what,
0: what shall we say? Um, um, poison. <laughs> Um, Pesticide,
1: and and then there there's a there, maybe something you can speak more to, and that is this idea that we may not be pursuing the kind of purity, but often other people believe that we are.
0: Oh, um, so we get projections. Yes,
1: and and to take off on one of your analogies, I often avoid identifying as being from Santa Cruz. <laughs> Because people think I'm going to be a locavore, vegetarian, nonviolent. Yeah, well, you do have a beard, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right.
0: I mean, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, you can get stereotyped, basically. Um, well, we're basically we're not responsible for other people's projections on us. Um, that's a good thing to realize. We may have to somehow relate to the fact that they or, you know, if if that's what they're producing, then that's the conditions, and we have to respond to that. But we're definitely not uh, responsible for their creation of those. Yeah. And, of course, there are people who live all the time with projections that they can't disidentify with, like by not saying that they're from Santa Cruz, you know, people of color or other folks who it's in a position where everybody can see it. So this is something where what I do when I see that and I see how difficult it is to be identified as somebody in some way, that makes me want to look at my mind and say, where am I doing that to other folks? You know, where might I be unconsciously projecting or making assumptions about people uh, in some way? I want to look at that behavior in myself, and try to cause as little harm as possible.